Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and it is PDAC week. Gold barely staying above $1,700, below $1,700 earlier. What is going on? Are we in a commodity super cycle or not? That is the subject of this week's podcast. And we have great guests on it. This was taken from the Global Mining Symposium, and it includes Paul Brink, president and CEO of Franco Nevada, and Daniela Dimitrov, partner at Sprott Capital Partners, and of course, our one of our star reporters, Cecilia Jamasmi at Mining.com. Actually, she is senior editor now, well-earned. And yeah, so that is coming up, so you really get some boots on the ground front row seats on the commodities market and what I liked actually about what they said. It's funny how famous that Jeffrey Curry Goldman Sachs call is that we are going into a super cycle because it was like the first 10 minutes of the talk is about Goldman Sachs's call. And so, yeah, so it's topical. And what I really liked about it was how measured it was because I think, you know, the market never makes it easy. Like always be aware of a super easy trade which is, you know, just buy copper now and wait. And yeah, maybe, probably, but do you want to buy it at $4 after it's just had a huge run-up? Do you want to buy all these things now? Do you want to buy silver? Look at what happened to gold. Obvious trade going higher. Did anybody six months ago expect us to be at $1,680 gold, which is where I think we were yesterday? I don't think so. So... Always try and keep your humility in these markets. Always kind of, you always want to question the other side, question your assumptions. So PDAC started um, some very interesting developments. I mean, don't forget last year, the pandemic, really the panic was starting basically during PDAC. It was actually late February. I'm in Europe, so it happened a little bit earlier over here. The proverbial clearing of the grocery store shelves in Milan. That's when I canceled my trip back to Toronto. The first PDAC I had missed since 2012. And uh, I remember feeling like, uh, you know, almost like I could see some people thinking I was being overcautious at the time. But who knows how long it would have taken me to get back back to Europe, back to Germany, where I am based. So turned out to be a good decision in the end. Um, But yeah, that was one year ago. We're really hitting on a year since the first lockdown. I think it was around March 12th. Remember, NHL, NBA canceled. It was when our sports leagues canceled. That's when it, that's when things got real in the West. So anyways, here we are. So there's the virtual PDAC this time around. I have to say it was pretty interesting what I've seen, like the opening remarks uh, by the team there. It looks like they have a bit of a CTV-like Booth just goes to show anybody can really start their own TV station today. Everybody has the technology. All you need is like a nice backdrop, a Toronto, a counter and a couple of chairs, a nice counter and a couple of chairs. And you're you're in business like CTV could only be, you know, 20 years ago. That was only their privilege. So anyways, we also have news on the Young Mining Professionals of the Year. They have been announced next week. We will have Stephen Stewart on. So we will... Talk to him about that. I'm actually interviewing him later today. Lots on the agenda. 
Another thing, another thing about PDAC was one thing I noticed was they changed the logo to green, which is really interesting. I assume as a way of basically saying, hey, we're cool. We're going to help power this green economy. That's my read on the color change. And follow Alicia Hyatt. She, uh, she is the editor of Canadian Mining Journal. She's been doing some great coverage of PDAC. So if you're looking to see it from afar from Twitter, uh, you can always just look at Alicia's feed. And what was the name of this panel? Here it is, Profits with a Purpose. And this was the conversation between Evie Hambro and Mark Brissot, hosted by Aline Cote. I guess she's from Glencore International. And Profits with a Purpose. And I just thought to myself, you know, it's pretty amazing that that is the big enlightened thing. Like to me, it's kind of the fact that we have to say, hey, let's not just make it about profits, but let's make it profits with a purpose. In a weird way, it kind of, uh, how should we say, it kind of proves all those sort of like extreme anti-corporate documentaries from the last 20 years. It kind of proves them a little bit right when we go, hey, yeah, profits with a purpose. Like Now, to be fair and everything, now it's a societal-wide thing, ESG, you know, but it, it's kind of damning to a certain degree on our previous mentality when we're, like, it's to suggest that before ESG, the ESG wave, which arguably is only the last two or three years, although it's been gaining steam for a while, previously, it really, you could say, well, profit is the thing and capitalism will work it out. And the market will work it out because if people don't want the unenvironmental metal, they'll decide. And that is kind of what's happening to a certain degree. Investors and actually the people that run the investors. So anyways, all to say uh, ESG, ESG, ESG front and center. I don't know how much more can be said about it, to be honest. Like, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, You are good to the community and you make sure that they benefit. In a sense, it's what should have been happening all along. And I think there are miners out there that had these values, but it did have to be kind of pushed from above, particularly the investor class and the Black Rocks of the world, to make it happen. Yeah, profits with a purpose, better late than never. So it's going to be interesting I th- how long this narrative plays out, Like because I don't know how many more panels we can have where we kind of keep talking about this. Where does the conversation go from here? I leave that an open question for you, lying there for you to ponder. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that... Let's turn to our next mining minute with Canorland Minerals President and CEO Zach Flood, who discusses the company's Frote project in Quebec. So let's listen to that. So joining me today is Zach Flood from Canorland Minerals, and he is President and CEO of Canorland Minerals. And Canorland Minerals is exploring the Frotet project in Quebec and can be found at canorlandminerals.com. Zach, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. 
it, it's great to have you. And so tell me about what you guys are up to. What are you excited about with the company? Yeah, so we're a relatively new company on the scene. Uh, we went public this early this year uh, through a reverse takeover transaction. Uh, we're now listed on the TSX Venture. Uh, alongside that, we raised $10 million through subscription receipts. And uh, so we've completed that as well. Um, so we're, we're well financed. Uh, we have over a million acres of mineral tenure between Alaska and Quebec. Those are the two jurisdictions we've focused on. It's a lot of early stage exploration, but we do have some advanced stage mixed in there as well. We have a, kind of our main focus in Quebec has been the ProTap project, where we have a joint venture with Sumitomo Metal Mining. We made a discovery last year uh, in the Frotet Evans Belt at a target called Renault, where we, we after about two years of uh, systematic exploration, um, we drilled a totally green fields target and, and ended up hitting about 29 meters at eight and a half grams, including 11 meters at 18 grams. So um, we're looking forward to getting back up there. Uh, we'll be drilling starting this week, actually. We have a 9,000 meter drill program planned and um, that will last about through March and April. And then uh, June, we'll be in Alaska drilling our Healy project in the Good Pastor District of Alaska. And then we have another project in eastern Alaska, which is a porphyry copper asset. We'll be drilling towards the end of the summer in August and September. Um, so there's three projects being drilled this year. They're all fairly early discovery stage programs. But that's, you know, it's a pretty exciting um, part, part, of the, uh, part of the curve to be on. So yeah, we look forward to it. Yeah, a lot of people are actually, they seem pretty happy to be drilling in Quebec. It seems like it's a fairly friendly place for miners. So with Protet, what are you seeing so far and what do you hope you have in Quebec at the Protet project? We believe we're onto a very significant gold system and this is a, a totally new discovery. There were no mineral occurrences there prior to us drilling this. There was no previous drill holes. Uh, it, it was a completely blind discovery. Uh, the entire area is under glacial till cover or and a shallow a shallow lake as well. And that first pass drill program last year, we drilled a total of about 7,800 meters. Uh, we intersected very significant gold mineralization in, in, in 14 of the initial 23 drill holes. And the mineralization was intersected over about a strike length of two kilometers. So we know that the, the system has scale already to begin with. Um, as I noted, there were some, some, some very uh, economic-looking intercepts, such as 29 meters at 8.5 grams. So it's got potential for not only the scale, but, but the grade and the width. And we're really just going to step out on, on some of the known mineralization, but also target new areas within that. And, and then there's a huge amount of blue sky down along the, what we're calling the Renault trend as well. There's another three kilometers of gold anomalies into the south of the area we drilled. Um, and we will be allocating about 3,000 meters of this drill program to testing totally regional targets as well. So if we can prove that this system is, you know, multiple kilometers long and, and really start to uh, delineate some, some of these zones in terms of the, the mineralization that, that we know of, then, um, yeah, it could turn into a pretty serious project. So, so that's what we're hoping is that uh, we found, you know, an actual you know, significant gold system and, and uh, it's, it's early days yet, but um, but it's uh, it's pretty exciting to find a completely new uh, a new a new gold system that no one's ever recognized. It is pretty exciting, sort of a blind discovery like that. So tell me about Sumitomo. How are they involved? Briefly, as we close here, how did they become involved? I always thought they were more of like an industrial metals company, but I don't know too much about Sumitomo. Tell me about how they became involved. They're they're actually completely well, mostly focused on on gold. Actually, they have uh, one 
current operating gold mine that they produce from, which is Hishikari in Japan. It's one of the world's highest underground gold mines. And previously, uh, a few years ago, they, they sold Pogo up in Alaska, which, which they were operating as well, and they owned 100% of. So they are, they are definitely focused on the gold side of things. We had staked the ground as a private company. We staked about 56,000 hectares of the Frota Evans Belt in uh, 2017 and kind of showed them this project and tried to get them interested very early on before we even set foot on the ground. And they agreed to that. And, and so so we are in a current uh, earning um, joint venture scenario with them. Uh, they've earned 65% of the project to date. And uh, this next drill program and IP survey we're completing right now for a total of about $4 million, we'll take them to 80%. And then we'll own 20%, and it'll be a co-fund scenario after that. So it'll be an 80-20 joint venture going forward. Okay, very good. And finally, what is your ticker? You said you were on the venture exchange, right? Yes, the symbol is KLD. KLD. That is So it's KLD, and it's KnorlandMinerals.com. Zach Flood, President and CEO of Knorland Minerals, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks, Adrian. appreciate it. And turning to the website, Matthew Fenton and Maggie Lehman named Young Mining Professionals of the Year. And this is always a big deal. This article is by Carl A. Williams. The winners of the Young Mining Professionals YMP Awards this year are Maggie Lehman of Cisco Development and Matthew Fenton of privately held Magris Resources. The YMP Awards presented in association with the Northern Miner recognize two mining professionals under 40 who have demonstrated exceptional leadership skills and innovative thinking and provided value to their companies and shareholders. The awards are named after two iconic entrepreneurs in the mining industry, Ira Thomas and the late Peter Monk. Maggie Lehman has won the 2021 Ira Thomas Award and Matthew Fenton the Peter Monk Award. This year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the awards will be presented during an online event on March 18th from 7 to 8 p.m. So again, we're going to have Stephen Stewart here. Uh, I'm going to interview him in a couple of hours, and he's going to be on the next show, and that will be before this event. So it's all lining up very nicely. Uh, the selection process this year was truly global, says Stephen Stewart, chairman of YMP and CEO of Orefinders. With roughly 100 nominees submitted from YMP chapters on, quote, every continent except Antarctica. Winners were nominated in a public submissions process. So let's find out who these people are. Stewart notes that Lehman was the runaway favorite for the Ira Thomas Award this year. Quote, it was a combination of Maggie's age and the level of responsibility she has taken on within a world-class company like a Cisco Development. The company is focused on the Caribou Gold Project in BC, which is a storied property with a lot of history. For such a young person to be involved in a project of this nature at her level is very impressive. Competition for the Peter Monk Award was a close race again this year, Stewart says, but it was the diversity of roles that Fenton fills at Magris Resources that clinched the award. Quote, he has been one of the key guys involved in the company's flagship Neobec mine and has done a fantastic job in operating the mine and delivering great value to the company's shareholders. It's interesting to note that Fenton's boss at Magris, Aaron Regent, is a former employee of Peter Monk. End quote. So those are the winners, and we have deep profiles on both winners and also at the bottom of the article is a link to the award ceremony. So if you go to the Northern Miner, just look for Matthew Fenton and Maggie Lehman named 
Young Mining Professionals of the Year. Congratulations to them both. And we will be discussing that more next week. Continuing on in the news, uh, we have this story from Cecilia Jamazmi. Mining.com resource nationalism surge spells rough time for miners. There's a study that was released that says that resource nationalism has spiked in more than 30 countries over the last year, and more than half of those nations are key producers of minerals and hydrocarbons. I wonder how they measure that, because I would guess Canada would, you know, if you asked a lot of people, what country wouldn't have resource nationalism? But I guess it depends what we mean by resource nationalism. Let's see if we can find out. The growing trend paired with the economic impacts of COVID-19 has heightened government's rising appetite for greater control over mineral revenues. The consultancy identified 34 countries in which a trend to take control over its natural resources or ensure higher profits from them has grown since 2017. At least 18 of those nations, including Ghana, Mali, Colombia, Chile, and Canada, are resource-dependent economies. Further, Varys Maplecroft warns that miners in Africa and Latin America are expected to take the brunt of new government measures to cash in on its resources over the next two years. Interventionism, expropriation, and indigenization are expected to be the key mechanisms states will use to claw back lost revenue during the pandemic-triggered economic slowdown. Talk of a new super cycle fueled by a sustained surge in commodity prices will only worsen the situation, experts say. And we have a quote from Jamina Blanco, Varys Maplecroft, head of Americas. Quote, the countries to watch closest are the mining jurisdictions characterized by both a painful COVID-related economic contraction and a rise in less explicit forms of resource nationalism. These governments are becoming more willing to intervene in the economy, use indirect expropriation or demand increases in local content requirements, opening the door to a more sophisticated resource nationalism path. Last year, miners experienced a pronounced increase in subtle forms of resource nationalism, such as higher taxation or more arduous regulation in major mineral producers. Mexico, the world's largest silver producer and foreign investment magnet, took the 14th position among the world's highest risk jurisdictions in Varys Maplecroft's Resource Nationalism Index. And you can see, if you go to the northernminer.com, we have some images that accompany this article and some charts. Some of the countries that are included, Zimbabwe, Liberia, Madagascar, Ghana, Mauritania, and Mali, these are sub-Saharan Africa, and in the Americas, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Suriname, Guyana, Chile, and Canada. It looks like Canada has had one of the biggest shifts in resource nationalism in the last while. I'm trying to read this chart. There's a lot going on in it. My advice for chart makers out there is just keep it simple. There are too many colors, too many. Anyways, we have another quote from Barris Maplecroft, a senior analyst, Mariano Machado. Issues around income distribution, poverty, access to education, and healthcare, to name but a few, can trigger sociopolitical processes that demand more from the state. And so here's the, the takeaway. What is key for miners, the report says, is to detect the signals early on so they can adapt their investment strategies and exploration portfolios to mitigate future exposure to nationalism trends. By doing so, the consultancy concludes, companies can also prioritize investment in jurisdictions where they can be part of the solution. They can work with local stakeholders to find a balance between community needs and industrial profitability to secure long-term social license to operate. 
Yeah, so this just kind of intensifies, you might say, the whole ESG trend, because if you're going into a place that already sort of hostile to foreign-owned mining companies, then, yeah, you're going to want to be on your best behavior in that area. Moving on, Tesla is getting involved in the New Caledonia nickel mine in order to secure metal supply. Dramatic headline from Cecilia Jamasmi. And let's just take a very quick look at this. Electric car maker Tesla would become a technical advisor at the conflict-ridden New Caledonia nickel mine as part of the company's attempt to secure enough supply of the key battery metal, which CEO Elon Musk has singled out as his biggest concern. Miners are getting a bit more importance in this world when Elon Musk is saying his biggest concern is supply of nickel. I don't want to go too deep into this. You can read the whole story on northernminer.com, but all to say Tesla is sort of getting involved in some of these nickel projects. In this case, there's a technical advisor, which is becoming a part of the New Caledonia nickel mine. Very interesting. Good way to sort of get a voice in there. And finally, Petra sells a 299 carat diamond for $12.18 million. Also by Cecilia Jamasmi, Petra Diamonds has sold a 299.3 carat diamond recovered in January at its iconic Kulinan mine in South Africa to Belgium-based Star Gems, DMCC, for $12.18 million. The freshly sold diamond adds to other famous diamonds unearthed at Kulinan, such as the Blue Moon of Josephine. This 29.6 carat blue diamond sold for $48.5 million in 2015, a world record price per carat for any diamond sold at an auction at the time. Crazy business. So you can see a picture of that 299 carat diamond on the northernminer.com. I'm not sure it looks like $12 million, but this could be a generational issue, as we've mentioned before. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We would like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets who provide us with these numbers each and every week. And on Tuesday, March 9th, gold is trading at $1,702.21 per ounce. That is $25 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $25.68 per ounce. That is $0.57 cents lower Then last week's quote, platinum is trading at $1,171.07 per ounce. That is $19 lower than last week's quote. Palladium is trading at $2,315.57 per ounce. That is $39 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is also lower at $4.09 per pound. That is $0.07 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at 99 cents per pound. That is one cent lower than last week. Lead is trading four cents lower at 92 cents per pound. Nickel is trading a dollar two lower at $7.42 per pound. Tin is trading 43 cents lower at $12.04 per pound. Cobalt is the exception. Cobalt is trading at $23.94 per pound. That is 36 cents higher than last week's quote, and zinc is trading lower at $1.25 per pound. That is three cents lower than last week. What do we see? 
Uh, the breaks are definitely on on gold and silver, gold more so. Even platinum and palladium suffering. Industrial metals really just taking a big breather after kind of a huge run-up. And cobalt, though, kind of looks like there might be a little bit of a supply issue with cobalt when you look at those price numbers. Bit of a buying panic, as James Dines would call it. So taking a breather except for cobalt, which continues to charge higher. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have a keynote presentation from the Global Mining Symposium. Are we in a commodity super cycle featuring Paul Brink, president and CEO of Franco Nevada Corporation, Daniela Dimitrov, partner at Sprott Capital Partners, and moderator Cecilia Jamazmi, senior editor at mining.com. I'm so glad to have Cecilia where you can hear her voice because we've read so many of her stories. So here she is in action. Everybody gets introduced in detail here. Anthony Vaccaro starts it off. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. Very excited about this one. I've been looking forward to it all day. We're going to have Cecilia Jamazmi, the senior editor of TheMining.com, is going to sit down with the CEO of Franco Nevada, Paul Brink, along with Daniela Dimitrov, who's a partner at Sprott Capital. Now, I'll let Cecilia do the introductions there, but let me introduce Cecilia, who we're very proud to have part of our team, one of the top mining reporters around. Cecilia has over 20 years of journalism experience under her belt. She spent at least half of that time covering the mining industry. She's also been a speaker at such conferences as Mine Expo, and is very interested in topics related to the corporate social responsibility and sustainability themes within the mining industry. Cecilia, welcome to the show, representing the East Coast of Canada, keeping with the, we have people coming in from all parts of the, of the world, really, but you're over outside of Halifax, correct? Correct, about an hour. Um, North, I would say, yes. Excellent. Beautiful part of the country. Thank you for joining us, Cecilia, and I'll pass it over to you and you can introduce Paul and Daniela. Thank you so much. Well, I'm very lucky today to be introducing Paul and Daniela. Daniela, she is partner of Sprout Capital and she has over 20 years of experience in building and operating all sorts of businesses relating to mining and financial services. Previously, Daniela served as a CFO of Urbana Mineral, that was a multi-commodity mine for gold copper. That's right. And uh, also, closer to home, she was the executive vice chair of Buffingland Iron. I could go on for a long time, so I'm going to try to summarize. Also, you are the director of Nexa Resources and International Petroleum and Chemistry Logistics, and you have served as a director of multiple other mining companies and chair as well. And perhaps even most importantly, you were nominated as one of the top 100 global inspirational women in mining. And with us here as well, Paul, president and CEO of Franco Nevada. He's been with the company since the IPO in 2007, and he has held different positions, uh, including a chief operating officer and senior vice president of business development. He had previously roles in other companies, very tied up with financing and business development. 
Um, he holds a bachelor degree of mechanical engineering from the University of Witherspoon and a master's degree in management studies from Oxford University. But today he's here representing Franco Nevada. And we're gonna to try to start talking about, I would say one of the hottest topics in the last two weeks. Are we, or are we not looking at a new super cycle? Let's start by this maybe defining what do we understand by super cycle? Paul, wanna give it a try? <laughs> sure. I think a couple of things on the cycle there is that we've had big cycles in the past in, in, in the 60s through the 80s, you, you had a 20 year cycle there. Uh, particularly in copper, but a lot of commodities. Again, in the 2000s, we had a cycle there. We had a decade-long cycle. I, I think we'd call both of those a super cycle. So anything with, with that strength and, and duration. Uh, although we always focus on the up part of a cycle when we speak about it. And uh, the, the important thing is it is a cycle. Uh, there's both an up and a downside to the cycle. What are your thoughts on it, Daniela? Well, I, I think, um, you know, we're by, by the nature of our, in, our industry, we're always positive. And, and I think to some extent, we have to be optimistic. And certainly, whether or not we are in a super cycle, there, there's certainly a lot to be positive about uh, in, in our industry over the last 12 months, as we've seen an incredible appreciation in, in a number of metals from the precious metals to to copper, to nickel, uh, and, and we're seeing uh, all-time highs that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. Um, so, so certainly lots to be positive about. In general, people say that a super cycle can be defined with there's like incredible growth in demand that cannot be met by the uh, supply that is existing or existing at the moment. If we think about that, in some aspects, we could say that we are experiencing a super cycle. Copper, for instance, there are not too many new mines being built, but it's not the same for all the commodities across the board. So on one hand, we have people and banks like Goldman Sachs saying, yes, we are at the beginning of a new super cycle. And then here we have people saying, wait a second, it's very good what we're seeing, but the fundamentals are not there yet. We don't have a superpower like China driving uh, incredible growth in demand in, in a very short period of time. So maybe this kind of takes us to another topic that is related. So in copper, for instance, we know that if there was to be a, a, a huge demand, especially considering um, the push for a green economy and building solar panels and electric vehicles, there's not enough projects. So Daniela, in your, um, in your experience as a partner in Sprouts, um, you were saying you know, the other day when we chat that there is capital out there to finance projects, but are there enough shovel-ready projects? Well, certainly we've seen an underinvestment in the industry over the last number of years as a result of the depressed prices, and not just only in, in the base metal space, but also in the precious metal space. And knowing how long it takes from the uh, time of discovery until first production, which uh, yeah, I think we're now looking at somewhere over 12 years, certainly that underinvestment eventually catches up with you. Uh, and we're seeing longer permitting times. Um, we're seeing perhaps a more nationalistic view of uh, resources in the particular host countries that we operate. 
um, and a more focus on uh, ESG as as we go forward and and that critical piece around uh, getting your social license to operate in. So all of those things ultimately really add up to extending that that time period that that I've just talked about. So certainly, um, I think that uh, there is a, a lack of shovel-ready projects. Um, and I think that the capital that has been raised by the industry over the last 12 to 18 months is certainly being put to use as we speak in progressing a number of projects that, that perhaps haven't been progressing as quickly over this period uh, of time in the last five years or so. What do you think about that, Paul, in your experience? Uh, well, just uh, you know, get, getting back to the thoughts on the cycle that you, you had there, Cecilia, and, and uh, your comment there, you know, people thinking that uh, China is not strong enough. I think to the contrary, China had a record trade surplus in, in 2020. The stock market has just hit new highs. Uh, China is the leader in green energy. So I think we have the baseline in terms of demand coming from China. And as, well, as we all know in commodities, if uh, you need to have China firing on all four cylinders as your baseline of demand. Uh, but I think also what, what Goldman Sachs has been speaking about applies more to the Western economies, which is two sides um, to the growth drivers. And the one being a green infrastructure build and, and the other one being the more a, a 70 type social rebuilding, uh, re redistribution of wealth um, and house building. And I, I think that's something that you don't see being spoken about enough. Um, here we are in a world of low rates. We all know the number one thing that happens when you got low rates is it drives real estate. And I think when you put that together with a COVID crisis and people's demand to have more space to live in, uh, I think what we're going to see is a huge housing boom. Uh, so it's no surprise when you look to see what commodity is taking off, it's lumber. You know, lumber was a year ago, it was $400 a thousand board feet, and now we're at a thousand. And uh, I think, you know, those are the signs that, that uh, the, these, uh, the growth will be there. And I think we're going to be surprised how much of it comes from the housing sector. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Paul, to, to your point, and you mentioned the Goldman Sachs um, call for the commodities super cycle uh, that they made back in November of, of 2020. You make an excellent point, uh, and, and that is that if you look at maybe the global financial crisis um, and compare that to the to the COVID crisis, they were they were really different at the end of the day. And the point that they make is that the COVID crisis is one that is more focused on um, the social side of things around unemployment and inequality, um, big focus on climate. And, and generally, when, you're, when your policies and your stimulus um, focus on addressing uh, structural challenges such as unemployment and such as inequality, history has really shown us that, that at the end of the day, those kinds of policies and those kinds of programs ultimately drive stronger and more aggressive growth um, versus, you know, maybe some of the policies that we saw to address the global financial crisis um, on, on that front. So, so, so very much uh, agree, Paul, with, uh, with, with your point on that front. Well, also, if you um, think of, along those lines, uh, the same Goldman Sachs said um, the investment in new and all, all the infrastructure needed for this green economy that 
every single country is hoping or actively building at the moment, could create uh, potentially a market of one to two trillion dollars a year over at least 10 years. We're not talking about small potatoes here, but and that should drive up the demand for a, a variety of raw materials. The obvious one that are all the construction related, but some not too obvious to other people, which are more perhaps less involved in mining and are not very aware of all the, the, the components that electric vehicles and solar panels and wind turbines they need to be built. Um, the mining industry has been facing this catch-22 for a while now. On one hand, we have people saying, stop mining, let's protect the environment. And then miners saying, yes, let's do it. But to protect the environment, we need all these things that need us to mine those materials. Also, the, the mining industry has been lacking a little bit of um, the right professionals, let's say it that way, the new talent that needs the mining industry. It's not so mechanical anymore. We all know that we need a lot of technology savvy people and new visions. Daniela, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about that? You have some experience with that um, new wave of workers. Uh, first of all, I guess to, to your point, maybe that catch 22 in a sense has come more at the forefront as we have been very much more focused on climate change um, institutional investors um, is very much at the forefront in um, uh, in their approach to to investing with with new regulations coming in in the EU um, that are uh, driving investment managers themselves to to have to uh, communicate to, to their own investors around how they've incorporated ESG into their investment process uh, and of course. Um, a lot of um, focus on the letters from the CEO of BlackRock and other institutional investors such as State Street and such as Vanguard um, around climate change and, and the environment. And so, so there's certainly um, the focus on the fact that, that we need uh, to, to get ourselves there and, and at the same time that we need the metals that we mine in order to, to drive towards a, a greener uh, economy at the end of the day. So. You know, certainly we've got to do our part in mining responsibly uh, and, and adopting uh, and working to, towards uh, standards and, and maybe aspirational uh, goals that, that are uh, longer term uh, in terms of how we are going to reduce our own emissions and reduce our own water usage and, and reduce um, um, our, our own um, or increase our own recycling and, and so on. And, and certainly for all of that, um, you know, we've also had discussions around the, the, the S and the G and the ESG around, around talent uh, and what kind of talent we're ultimately going to need in order to drive the innovation and to drive the technology. We're much more aware of the fact that the new generation is focused on companies having a purpose and a desire to work for companies that have a purpose beyond uh, generating profits or maximizing profits for the shareholders. Um, and also that aspect of, of diversity around the capabilities and the skill sets and the experiences where um, you, you, know, you, you would need individuals that uh, can create data, but you would also uh, need individuals that can actually 
read data. And, and that's a different skill set at the end of the day as we embrace more technology and, and more AI. So definitely a lot to think about from, from a talent uh, perspective and the future of work um, on that front um, that, will, that will get us to meet uh, these objectives uh, and also to be able to attract talent to, to our industry uh, versus losing talent, talent to, to industries that are viewed as, uh, as more green or more technology focused or more innovative than, than, our, than our industry. Mm -hmm. Lots of pressure for mining companies out there to, to do it right. Um, Paul, Franco Nevada is well known for the pre precious metals, but speaking about pressure and how um, major miners are facing now uh, the need to address their emissions and whatnot, um, I don't know if many people know that Franco Nevada also has an energy area, an energy business. Um, what's the plan with that division? Are you guys keeping it? not why please tell us a bit about it sure and a couple of thoughts in it and maybe to start off with one of the largest investments that we have and have had for a long time on the energy side is in weyburn in saskatchewan weyburn is actually the world's largest carbon sequestration project um, so we actually in our portfolio through weyburn put more co2 into the ground um, than is created uh, from our full energy portfolio in, in the production of those fuels. Um, so when, when, you, when you get to the nuts and bolts, it's actually a, a very climate friendly portfolio. But maybe to answer your question more broadly, uh, in terms of you know, what do companies do, and let's say you're a big diversified company and, and you do have coal assets, there has been a lot of pressure from shareholders to say sell those assets. It's, it's not an area we want to be in. If they do sell those assets to a private company, it's actually done nothing to help reduce the world's carbon footprint. Uh, you've taken those assets from a good operator, potentially to not as good an operator, and, and you've taken out of them out of the public scrutiny. Um, and so you see, you know, many of those diversified companies, Glencore being one of them, saying now we're not going to sell our coal. That doesn't make sense. We're better off to take it, operate it well, see what we can do, do to reduce the CO2 from those assets. Um, not building any new uh, coal mines, focusing the new investment into you know new metals, um, and for all of us, uh, metals that are going to benefit from a more electrified world: copper, nickel, battery metals. Um, so I think th those are the practical approaches that that the industry has to take and is taking. And I, and I would think the same from an institutional investor perspective. I know that certainly on the lending side. Uh, we've seen a number of uh, of banks uh, make pronouncements that from uh, you know a certain point forward they're not going to lend um, to certain projects such as to the thermal coal industry. Uh, on that front, I think we've seen it a bit less on the equity side um, of the business. Um, but to Paul's point, um, you know certainly sitting as a capital provider. Uh, to uh, you know, to to some of these uh, uh, aspects of of our industry, you certainly are in a position where you can exercise influence. Um, you are in a position where you can um, um, advance uh, certain ESG standards with respect to you know to those companies and those projects. Um, certainly, from a remediation perspective. 
Um, there are concerns that when an asset passes from you know a major to a junior, um, you, you don't have the same protections around the balance sheet, and that at the end of the day, you may have the taxpayer end up uh, you know footing a remediation uh, bill. So, so certainly, I think in addition to um, you know to the responsible uh, uh, industry participants uh, maintaining a, a responsible uh, way to operate these assets. I mean, certainly from a capital providers, there, there are a lot of positives that, that they can do um, uh, in order to, to ensure that those assets are appropriately managed. That's right. Um, we have a question here when we were talking about commodity cycles. Um, as we kind of said in our conversation, not always all the commodities are um, High at the same time, and they're asking if any, if you know of any study or any research done in which commodities are right now out of sync. Uh, well, gold is out of sync right now. <laughs> they, uh, uh, you know, very much gold did very well with the onset of of the COVID crisis. Um, people made a lot of profit, uh, but right now the the move is into the cyclical commodities. So you are seeing outflows of the gold ETF, um, but you know I don't the I think the longer term gold thesis is as strong as as strong as ever. Uh, few reasons. First of all, weak US dollar. Um, as I mentioned earlier, China's strength. China was one of the only major economies that actually grew last year. Uh, it's forecast to grow again this year at seven percent. We know that the Chinese economy is converging with the US economy in terms of size, and, and uh, COVID has only accelerated that. Uh, so as you know, the Chinese economy approaches the size of the US, I mean, I would argue that you're going to see a weaker US dollar, certainly against the yuan. Uh, gold is always a, a hedge against the US dollar. Uh, the second is inflation, and JP Morgan has, has been using the term tolerated inflation. Uh, you know, I think in this environment, you've got to expect that the Fed will be a dove um, for two reasons. Uh, because of the necessity for a pandemic recovery, I think they will tolerate um, more growth. Uh, and the second is for the U.S. To, to stay as the world's top trading partner, they need to grow. They need to grow at, uh, you know, perhaps not the same speed as China, but, but they need good growth. And so I think the... Um, uh, that will lend to tolerating more inflation in order to promote that growth rather than being more hawkish. Mm -hmm. And the third reason is, is market setup. Uh, gold is a hedge against market volatility. Uh, right now, we've got extremely high equity valuations um, for two reasons. One is you've got a huge amount of debt, so more capital available that's, that's driving up those prices. Second is the low cost of that debt. When you do your dividend discount model, it, it will justify high equity valuations. Uh, but as we said earlier on, it's all a cycle. Uh, so you know that uh, when you come to the point that that debt has to be repaid, all that capital has to come out of the market. Uh, so you've got to set up for market volatility. Uh, you know, I think those are all the reasons that, that people hold a portion of their portfolio in gold longer term. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of um, a question that I had in the back of my head, um, whereas everyone is talking and predicting what's going to happen with, um, let's say, the green metals or forward-looking metals like copper and nickel. I wonder 
what's, what's expected to happen to pre precious metals? Uh, how those, the precious metals are going to fare in that environment where there's a demand for all these other ones? I guess it depends a lot on the factors that you have mentioned. But um, do you have any more insider information? <laughs> well, I guess on the other, the other precious metals, and, and uh, we've seen a lot of interest on the PGMs. Uh, and uh, the, uh, particularly uh, in the hydrogen economy, and as, as we see that playing a part uh, of how vehicles get fueled going forward, that, 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 that can be a very big driver in the PGM space. Uh, and in the silver space on the solar side, uh, silver is a good component of solar panels. So, uh, you know, while gold is driven more by the investment demand side, some of the other precious metals have, have got a lot more industrial applications and a lot of those are related to a greener economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we've certainly seen a, a silver, silver has appreciated uh, almost 50% uh, uh, over the course of the last 12 months. And uh, you know certainly is expected to to really to outperform gold in uh, in 2021, um, and uh, for for the reasons that Paul mentioned, one being same same attributes around um, inflation and, and, and the U.S. dollar, but uh, the other side of it is the the industrial use of uh, of the metal, and uh, with more than 50 percent of the demand. Um, for the metal actually coming from the industrial space, uh, being used in, in solar panels and batteries, um, cellular, um, and then and then the similar um, underinvestment and, and and maybe the more rarity of of deposits uh, out there that uh, that have uh, that are primarily silver deposits. You know, certainly silver is a byproduct in, in a number of mines, um, but there are not that many mines out there. You know where you where you see silver being you know 70 80 percent of uh, of your output mm -hmm. that's right well since i'm with you i'm going to ask you the the question that just popped up here in our window from anna she wants to know how sprout capital is evaluating investment opportunities from the perspective of sustainability and social kpis um if you have any kpi that is non-financial she would like to know that and how Sprout is looking at projects from a multi-stakeholder point of view. Sure. That's very loaded question, so if you want, we can cut it up in pieces. That's okay. Um, you know, there, there are uh, several aspects to, to our business. One is an asset management business, one is a lending business, and one is, a, is an equity capital markets business. And so in two of our business lines, uh, we certainly raise capital from other investors. And this is very much a factor um, in investors' allocation of capital to us. So whether it is in our lending business or we're raising capital for, from pension funds, uh, universities, uh, and endowments, uh, and other institutions, this is certainly uh, something that is very top of mind for them. And, and in a sense, they do due diligence on, on our business and what uh, process we have in uh, incorporating uh, ESG in our in our own allocation of of capital, be it through through equity or or the lending side, um, on on that front, and and certainly uh, you know we've incorporated um, uh, processes into our business uh, around ESG due diligence in in all aspects of of our business. Mm -hmm. 
Franco Nevada was not a mining company per se. I imagine that also has some sort of strategy in ESG. Um, what is the company actually or currently doing in that estate? Yeah, a few things. Kifra, as you point out, we are we're passive investors in projects. The difference we can make is is when we allocate our capital going into a project, and, and so it's picking good projects. It's doing your due diligence on the environmental side, make sure the projects don't have any adverse impact on the environment. It's it's looking at the social side to make sure that there is a benefit to the communities. Uh, so it is uh, directing your capital to good projects. Uh, we also do make contributions to the community. So we're involved in ourselves and in, uh, in supporting them and, and uh, participating in making sure that there is a benefit to those communities. Um, but also ESG has a broader implication for us, uh, you know, as with companies and it's more on the, on the governance side uh, in managing our, our own business. Uh, and that comes to workplace diversity uh, and alignment with shareholders. And uh, the, uh, so we're active uh, promoting our diversity, ha have quite good diversity, looking to improve it. Uh, and uh, in terms of alignment with it, with shareholders, that means for us uh, ownership, making sure our, our management has good ownership in our stock, uh, but also keeping our GNA low, showing showing our shareholders that we respect their money. Uh, we think that creates the greatest alignment, and is uh, that, that that is one of the most important things in terms of governance. Mm -hmm. Most most definitely. Um, a little bit changing topic back to where we were talking previously, and. Um, the prices and commodities. Um, as you probably heard already, the two major mining companies, BHP and Rio Tinto, handed out 14 billion, 14 billion in dividends just last week to their shareholders. Um, the interesting part is that those profits did not came from the forward thinking or green metals such as copper and nickel, but it came from iron ore which, as you know, is very well um, known for being linked to the steel-making process, which is one of the most polluting processes. Um, what are your, your comments on this? How, how do you think these big companies can navigate through the challenge of having their main revenue and therefore the main source of dividends for their uh, shareholders coming from um, a commodity, a commodity that is not really the, the, the greenest, let's say, in the world. Yeah, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, the um, you, you can't make the companies responsible for demand. There is demand for the product. Uh, I think the way uh, you need to think about it is um, the, the metal is going to get produced around the world. Who are the best people to produce it? Uh, who can produce it in the most environmentally friendly fashion? Uh, and I would argue that that you know many of those large diversified companies are they're very responsible operators. They do everything they can to minimize the environmental footprint, do everything they can to minimize the climate footprint. So the, the world is going to use that iron ore. Uh, how do we produce it uh, uh, with the least impact as we can? I, I think in general they do a terrific job. Mm -hmm. Also interesting that it's not the commodity that banks like Goldman Sachs. Um, are seen or are foreseen will be the ones kind of driving the new super cycle. Yes, thought I would put it out there. 
Uh, you, you know, fair enough. Uh, the, uh, and I guess a, a cycle always comes from, it's a mismatch between supply and demand. Uh, and so it's the, where we've got a big change in the outlook is electrification. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it's when you get those points of inflection that, that, that you get your big price moves because it's hard for supply to keep up with demand. Uh, so no surprise that it's, um, it's the metals that are going to be related to the new growth that that uh, you know may be the most exciting. Mm -hmm. We're getting very close to the end of our time, but there's a new question for you, Paul, that I want to read before we finish our conversation. Is Franco Nevada looking at the circular economy, metal recycling, um, and if not, why? Uh, Meaning, we... part of the future investment. <laughs> It's an interesting question, and it is an interesting market. Uh, we we have spent a bit of time looking at the market, see a lot of growth in that market. Um, if there were good opportunities to invest in that, we, we would be very open to it. Um, we, as always, I, the as a business, we're uh, we try to be entrepreneurial uh, in how we think about investments. We're trying to expose our shareholders to commodity price optionality. Uh, we, we're trying to <clears throat> expose them to that open-ended optionality that is, is so common amongst resources. If we can find those same things uh, in other forms of investments, we, we'd look to be creative about how we do it. Mm -hmm. What about sprouts or capitals? Are you considering the, the circular economy in particular as one of the areas of investment in the present or near future? Um, uh, at the moment, it, it is not. Uh, it, it is not a, a focus. It's, it's certainly a consideration in in looking at, at supply and, and demand and what impact uh, metal recycling, uh, such as you know, you would see in in the copper space, and and how much of that metal can enter uh, into uh, into the the sector and and have an impact ultimately uh, in in order in, in looking at at capital allocation on that front. Mm -hmm. That's well, thank you so much. We have run out of time, but it's been a real pleasure talking to hey, you today. Cecilia, you guided such a fantastic conversation. Daniela and Paul, thank you so much for your insight. There is one, I did, before you go, there is one question that just snuck in here that I do think it's, it's a little bit out of scope, but it could be very relevant. It's on the small nuclear reactors. And of course, the federal government has you know said that they're, they're supporting this. It's a, it's a very interesting topic, right? Because you have that G, uh, greenhouse gas component, you know, you're taking away carbon, there's no carbon emissions, as we all know, but we also all know that there's a lot of public fear around anything that is nuclear. To Daniela and to Paul, to both of you, do you see small nuclear reactors becoming a game changer in some ways, especially for like big remote uh, gold projects? We think of something like Donlin Creek in Alaska. Is it a game changer? Is this real? Or is this something that the, you feel that the ultimately public pressure against nuclear will be too strong? And I haven't spent a lot of time looking at small nuclear reactors, so I, I, I won't pretend to give this as a technical answer, but uh, I think so much of it is just around the psychology of, of nuclear. Um, the, it, it's got a bad history. It, it'll take a lot to overcome that history. Uh, I think what will do it is uh, some successful projects. I think once you get one or two that are installed, people can see them operating safely. Uh, I, I think if you've got proof of concept, uh, I think it really, it, it really can play a huge role. You know, anytime you look at what the makeup of the electricity grid is, 
Uh, pragmatism will tell you that nuclear should play a very big role in it. Um, so if you can crack that psychological element, uh, I think it could have big potential. I know that a number of provinces are um, uh, are working with a number of um, of technology providers and 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 manufacturers on on these. New Brunswick is, is one. On Ontario is is another. Um, and uh, when you look at, at the timeline to um, to actually getting to um, a, a final uh, product, and in, in a sense, we're talking ten plus years, um, you know, from 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 the from the testing and and, and ultimately the the permitting and the approval. So it is a it is a long period of time, and um, I you know I wish that there was more capital available in in the space, as, as I know some. Um, some of the market participants that are going through some of these processes have been looking around for uh, for capital. Um, so it's certainly an interesting area. It should be very much of interest to the mining industry um, because of the, um, the remote locations in, in which we find ourselves in and the amount of capital that we dedicate not only to, to energy being a, you know a third of our costs, but also to you know to, to infrastructure and building roads and power lines and, and so on. Um, so I, I definitely, I think it's a great question, and I think it's an area that um, you know the, the mining industry um, uh, you know could do uh, more in terms of of, of looking in, uh, at it and, and participating with the other participants that are that are going through these processes with the provinces. Excellent. So there you have it, another cutting edge conversation from the Global Mining Symposium. The jury is still out on this commodity super cycle. I'm starting to get skeptical. I'm starting to get just a little bit skeptical. It's not written in stone, but let's see. I mean, let's just see where these prices go. Thank you once again for joining us on this program. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, it is always appreciated. We have a very exciting interview with Stephen Stewart coming up next week on the Young Mining Professionals. The award winners as well as how you can get the scholarship so lots to talk about until next week take care